Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I want to welcome you as well with Austin. We're going through the book of James, and um, I haven't been here the last couple of weeks to preach because we went down to the beach, um, and on the way back from the beach, um, well, actually on the way to and back, you go through Jacksonville, North Carolina, which is a really interesting little city um, because it's where Camp Lejeune, one of the largest marine bases in the country, is located. So when you go through Jacksonville on, on Highway 24, you go right past the Marine Base. And uh, I remember, whenever I go past that, I remember a few years ago, um, this was kind of more in the, in the time when the war was going on. Um, there were these large, uh, kind of like a sheet, just like a normal sheet, but they would paint on the sheets, and there were just dozens of sheets along these uh, fences that go past Camp Lejeune. And um, on, the fin- on, on these sheets, it had little things that are written down things like i googled this and, and saw certain images you can you can look at these things so one might have said welcome home lieutenant scott we've been praying for you or welcome back captain smith the girl you left behind is still behind you uh, i've been waiting for you jack sutton just like i promised and um <clears throat> i guess when the soldiers are coming back on the buses they're they're looking at these things as they come to meet their their families and I don't usually get very emotional about things, but I remember when I was driving past this, I began to cry just thinking about those, both the soldiers uh, seeing these things and the families who had written them for the soldiers. And um, <clears throat> I think that in some ways um, that James is, um, James is letting these Christians know um, that there's this, this reunion that's about to come. And um, in many ways, it's, it's because a battle has been going on, and it's like a soldier's uh, homecoming. The, these uh, persecuted little communities of exiled Jewish Christians, uh, they, were, they were kicked out of Jerusalem because of persecution there. The, these, these Christians uh, fled to towns like uh, Antioch and Alexandria, nearby Jerusalem. And um, they are now living in these new places weary and anxious and James is writing to them to comfort them, encourage them and he says be patient until the coming of the Lord that uh, this person is coming back for them and um, he's almost home the coming of the Lord is at hand in verse 8 verse 9 is even more specific he's standing at the door just imagine him right there on the other side of those doors that's what James wants these Christians to be thinking about, to be imagining. And so I want to look at this idea of the return of Jesus, which is imminent, according to James. And not just James, but Paul, <clears throat> John, all these early Christians, they felt like the return of Christ was, he was right there. He was behind the door. He was about to come in. So I want to look at that, which uh, we, don't, we don't talk about that enough. Uh, it's actually in a lot of the ancient hymns. If you look at most of the old hymns, the last chorus is about the second coming. But uh, for some reason, um, it's not really talked about enough in most churches, including this one. But I want to look at that. And then also, the, uh, this, that's, that's this objective reality. He's coming back. That's his work. But then we also have to respond to that. And, and James says, you need to be waiting for that. You, you need to be subjectively moved by that to certain actions. Like one of them would be stop grumbling. Or another one you mentioned is stop swearing. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. So first, uh, I want to look at the return, which is just this objective event that's coming. And then our 
uh, expectant waiting for him. Second. So, first of all, look at verse 7. <clears throat> Be patient, brothers and sisters. Whenever the New Testament uses the word brothers, it includes the sisters as well. Um, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. And the Lord there, if you don't know, that refers to uh, Jesus. The, uh, the Lord is the one who came to save us at Christmas. It's the second person of the Trinity is what we believe as Christians. That God is three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the Son came to save the world. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. That's the essential uh, Christian story. But another part of that story, which we don't tell enough is that it doesn't end with a resurrection. Uh, That in the book of Acts, which is right after the end of the Gospel of Luke, it says in verse uh, verse 9 of chapter 1, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now don't think um, vertical. I mean, I don't know what they saw, but obviously God is not up there um, any more than he's down there or over there. But something happened that represented to these early Christians that were watching this that that Christ had gone to another dimension, that he was not there anymore. And so uh, he is not with us anymore on this planet. You're not going to be able to find him uh, on this planet. That when he left, his disciples were told, um, this is the rest of that verse, Acts 1-9, just as he was now taken into heaven, that is exactly how you're going to see him coming back. So he left in some kind of cloud, and he's going to come back in some way, in some kind of cloud. And this is not just a New Testament idea. It's back in the Old Testament in uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, Jesus talks about it. You're going to see me coming on the clouds. Whatever that means, that's the way that the Bible says the story is going to end. It's often called uh, the second coming. And I just want you to know that this is not... um, some obscure sidebar teaching of like extreme fundamentalists. Uh, you may have grown up in a dispensationalist background where the second coming was kind of the main thing. That's a, that's a branch of Christianity that, called dispensationalism and premillennialism. And uh, if you don't know about that, that's okay. But they're very interested in these uh, charts and detailed timelines. about pro- They have prophecy conferences. And it's all about this second coming and what's going to happen. But those of us who are not in that camp then often dismiss all of that and we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I want to say no, that uh, the second coming is part of the Apostles' Creed. Like, this is central stuff. Like I said, it's in many, many hymns. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so that's not an optional idea. That's something that uh, Christians have to believe in. So you may have trouble with the rapture or the tribulation or the left behind books you know you might have rejected all that well you've still got to deal with the fact that um that jesus told his disciples in, in john 14 1 i will come back to be with you in matthew 16 27 i'm going to come again and i'm going to reward each person according to what he's done in mark 8 38 i'm going to come again in my father's glory with the holy angels this is not a small teaching is a big part of the story. And a lot of us don't draw much strength from it. And so I want to help you to do that this evening. To put that in your mind again. That, that Christ is coming back. That in some ways evangelism is just telling someone, look, Jesus is coming back. And so be ready for him. Be waiting for him. He's real. Um, this is not some private event. 
This is a public, universal, worldwide event that we believe that he's coming to restore this planet and make all things new and all things well. You know, the Egyptians, um, they, had a, they had the ending of their story. They thought that uh, the universe was going to end in chaos. That was the ancient Egyptian view of things. The, the Norse, if you've seen uh, Thor Ragnarok, you know that uh, in Norse mythology, the, the world would end with Ragnarok, this final battle between the gods. But then after that, there would be a new world that would rise out of Ragnarok. And then if you're a Marxist, you know, Karl Marx thought that the, <clears throat> the working class would rise up and they would overthrow the rich and they would bring in a whole new worldwide economic prosperity. It would be a new age. And so almost all the secular worldviews, it doesn't take a religious worldview. Uh, people who are secular also have a kind of a, a view of the end of the story. Uh, scientists, many scientists say that the, the galaxies are going to be destroyed. Uh, they're just going to keep expanding and the solar system is going to break apart. Uh, the earth is going to explode. And then all atoms, every single atom will be ripped apart. And somewhere between 17 to 22 billion years from now. So watch out. You know? <laughs> 17 to 22 billion years from now, that's going to happen. And, and Jesus says, you know, no, that's not the way uh, the universe is going to end. That's not it. Uh, he says, I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back and bring justice. I'm going to make everything right. All those things you hate about the world, all the war, all the violence, all the bloodshed, um, all the oppression, all that, I'm going to end that. I'm going to keep this world, but I'm going to end all that. I'm going to, I'm going to come and make things right. Behold, verse 9, which means look, look, the judge is standing at the door. The judge being the one who's going to set things right. So that's the way we as Christians believe the world's going to end. That's the end of the story. Um, and you might say, well, I personally disagree with that. And I think that um, that's not the right way to see things. And I have a different view of the way the world's going to end. And, you know, I would say, uh, respectfully, it doesn't really matter what you believe. This is, again, this is like, this is a public claim about what's going to happen to the whole universe. It's kind of like saying, well, I don't really like global warming. I don't like the idea of global climate change. Um, you know, it's either going to happen, or it's either happening or it's not happening. It's not like, it doesn't matter that much what you believe about it. It's just, this is, according to Jesus, what is going to happen. And then Paul taught that, and James taught that, and all down the centuries, Christians have been saying, this, this second coming is going to happen. <clears throat> and I have to admit, <clears throat> personally, like this is one of the hardest things for me, uh, as a Christian, uh, to swallow. When I was not a Christian, I was looking into the faith. Uh, one of the things that really kept me back for a while was, was just the idea that the early Christians clearly thought that Jesus was coming right back. And, and so I read all these books that said, well, they thought he was coming back. He didn't come back. They were clearly wrong. And so what else were they wrong about? Probably everything, the resurrection, all those things. So, you know, that's a hard, how do you deal with that? And indeed, look at what it says in verse 8. Uh, the coming of the Lord is at hand. At hand means very soon. And <clears throat> so you say, well, James was wrong about that. And I would say, this is kind of a strange way out of this dilemma, but I would say no. Um, we should all be expecting right now for him to be right outside that door. And you just live in that tension. Every single generation of Christian has lived in that tension. So James was not wrong to be feeling that he was coming right back. James never said he's coming on this date. 
Jesus never said, I'm coming on this date. But there's this imminent longing that I think is appropriate for all Christians down all the ages to have. Unfortunately, it has spilled over many times into precise predictions. And actually, a lot of cults have come out of these things. So, for instance, uh, William Miller said it would happen in 1844. A lot of these people are Americans, and some of them were engineers. So, you know, American engineer prediction of a date. (laughs) I was an engineer, so I can say that. William Miller said 1844 for sure. 1844 came around, didn't happen. He said 1864 for sure. And so out of uh, the Millerite movement, you get the Seventh-day Adventists. It came out of William Miller's teaching. And then uh, a guy named Charles Russell, he said, no, 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 not 1844 or 64, but it's 1874. You made this miscalculation of 10 years. And then that didn't happen, and so the Jehovah's Witnesses came out of his teaching. And then Joseph Smith said 1891. That didn't happen, so the Mormons come out of that teaching. Harold Camping, you might have heard of Harold Camping. He's the latest fanatic who predicted a date. He said it would be 1994. That didn't happen. Then he said 2011. May 2011. That didn't happen. So he said October 2011. That didn't happen. And then he died. (laughs) He still hasn't come back. So my point is you can't make a prediction. And you can't make a prediction because Jesus said you can't make a prediction. He said in Mark 10.32 concerning the day or the hour that I come back, no one knows. I don't even know. The angels don't know, no one knows, the Father knows, and I'm content with him to know, and that's it. And you know, to this day, I wonder, does Jesus know now? And my answer would be no, he doesn't. That even now, in his glory, he doesn't know when the Father's going to send him back. So we shouldn't make predictions. If he doesn't know, you don't know. And yet, not having made predictions, we should be very, very hungry. If you're a Christian and you're not hungry, this is a invitation to enjoy the imminence of his return because it's a really big part of our faith Uh, look at verse 8 again establish your hearts for his coming is at hand i love that that word it's about to happen it could have any moment and so be encouraged and you know frankly i'd rather be a fool i'd rather be harold camping than a cynic and someone who doesn't draw any strength on this teaching someone who never thinks he's coming back someone who lives their life as if that's never going to happen. And, and that kind of moves to my second point, which is that we need to be waiting for him. And uh, we, we need to know and believe that he's coming. And the question is, are you really expecting it? Does it or another way to say it, are you really moved by it? Um, you probably believe it somewhere in your head, or many of you do, but uh, does it have any effect on your personal life? Do, are any of your decisions really affected by the fact that he's coming back? Or another thing, do you, do you emotionally like, look forward to it? Do you look forward to that the way you do vacation or a, uh, retirement or anything like that? Does it actually matter to you in terms of what you're looking forward to in life? Because if, imagine one of those um, families at Camp Lejeune and the soldier's coming home and the family's like watching TV because they don't believe. They don't believe that the person's coming home. And so they're just, they're just checked out. They completely are not waiting for the homecoming you know, if you're a believer, you don't want to be like that. And so Jesus has a lot of st- stuff about be ready and be waiting and be expectant. A lot of parables are about that. And so that's the second point is not only is he coming back, but we need to be waiting like, like a farmer waits for the crops to come in, for the rain to come in. And that's the, that's the analogy James uses. Look at verse 7. Uh, he says, see how the farmer waits 
for the precious fruit of the earth. This is one of those times where James is, uh, like he often does, is hearkening back indirectly to his brother's teaching. Uh, James, probably more than anyone, practically quotes his brother. You know, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, Jesus said that. And so I love how James, looking up to his older brother, um, is often quoting him and is talking about stuff that he talked about. So the farmer, he probably got that idea from his brother. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. And he's patient about it. And he's waiting until it receives the early and the late rains. Um, the, the farmer is really excited about the early and the late rains. If, if you're a farmer, and probably none of you are farmers, we're so far off from the land, we're so far from living in an agricultural society that we don't really get the analogy very well. But if you're a farmer, apparently, the early and late rains meant everything to you. Because if you didn't have the early and late rains, you're going to have a bad crop. And so what gets the farmer really, really excited is the precious fruit of the earth. And James is saying that the precious fruit of the earth that the farmer longs for is like the second coming. That it's that good. It's precious fruit. It's like the best tasting fruit that you've ever had in your life. And, and it's like a farmer waiting for that. And that's how the farmer lives. Is the, the early rain and the late run is what he lives for. And really, uh, one of the few things I can think of uh, in my life where the weather makes me excited is snow. I love, absolutely love snow. And I don't like the winter very much, but it, because the possibility of snow is there, I, I love the winter uh, simply because of that fact. And so if, um, if snow is in the forecasts, especially a lot of snow, I can pretty much wait patiently for almost anything. If the farmer knows that the early rain and the late rain is coming, if the rain is coming, if it's happening, then he can wait patiently for almost, through almost anything. And so if, uh, if my family's angry with me, if the house is a mess, if uh, I'm losing a big game, or if I'm sick or feeling depressed, if there is snow coming, it, it, gets me, it can push me through that. And I don't know what it is about you, but think about the perfect weather forecast. And... Maybe in the perfect place, the, the best place you've ever been, that weather forecast in that place, maybe that's the closest thing you can get to to, to, to kind of creep into this analogy that, that James has given us of the farmer waiting for the early rain and the late rain and the precious fruit of the ground. Somehow he wants you to feel that urgency, the excitement of that. The, the, when, the, um, you know, when my little weather app has all those snowflakes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 100%, 100%, 100%, that's, that just gets me so able to wait and persevere and be strengthened. James uses this word in verse 8 that is um, about physically being strengthened by food. And it's translated establish. Verse 8, establish your hearts. Uh, in the biblical worldview, the heart was more like the mind. It was where the thoughts were being driven by, where... All these you know, deepest cognitions were happening. That was the heart. And so uh, what he's saying is, you know, let your heart feed on this. Because establish is a word that basically means uh, being sustained by food. Um, the coming of the Lord is at hand. So let your thoughts and all the, this continuous flow of your, uh, of your cognition uh, be strengthened by the, the food of him coming back. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are several stories where the word strengthen here is used, established, for travelers who are finding food. So we went on a hike you know, a few weeks ago, and um, at the end of that hike, we were going to go to the Mellow Mushroom. 
Obviously, it wasn't that far out, you know, in the wilderness. So we're going to go to the mellow mushroom after the hike. And the mellow mushroom on like mile, you know, three or four is what was strengthening my heart, is thinking about that. And so, you know, in the way that food can, can push you through these things that are really, really hard, James is saying the coming of the Lord can establish you. Uh, if you're feeling absolutely terrible about life, if your mind begins to move into that realm, it can give you, it can feed you. Can give you strength right now. Um, whether you know you're, I don't know, whatever you're going through, the, the difficulty of relationships is one of the ones where we just so much need to have our hearts established, or um, a kind of a just some kind of medical emergency, uh, the despair of just feeling awful all the time, a depression, um, all the anxiety, terrible anxiety. If your job's going terribly, or you're dreading going to work. All these places where the, the coming of Christ matters, it can actually do something to your life to, to strengthen you if you keep this in mind. The, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The, the phrase at hand is used 41 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it has to do with some action that is so close to happening that it changes what you do right now. So for instance, in Mark 11, 1, when Jerusalem was at hand, as they were approaching the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of them. When Jerusalem was at hand, in other words, when they could see the temple, now it was at hand and it was time to send James and John ahead and make preparations. So when something is at hand, um, then you can actually begin to take action. And last week we were driving over the big bridge over the Bogue Sound that connects Cape Carteret to Emerald Isle. And so I basically said to my children, you know, Emerald Isle is at hand. So go ahead and start putting away your trash, put away your screens, get your stuff ready. Uh, The beach is at hand. And that's the way that he's talking about the second coming, which means that because it is at hand, um, your actions should start to change. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand and therefore be self-controlled. Isn't that interesting? The end of all things is at hand, and so you can be self-controlled and sober-minded because it is at hand, a new action is required. Um, Be patient. The return is so near, verses 8 and 11. Remain steadfast. The the return is so near. It's at hand, and so there's this new action that is required. You know, when the sun is returning... um, Every morning, this reunion with the sun, essentially, you know, you and the sun are reunited. It's coming back up over the horizon. <clears throat> That's like the day is at hand. And so your actions change because the day is at hand. And Romans 13, 11, Paul says, the night is far gone. The day is at hand and salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So let us cast off the works of darkness. Because the day is at hand. Because morning is, is, is broken. And uh, because the day is at hand, um, certain actions don't make sense anymore. Uh, Pajamas don't make sense anymore because the sun is up uh, for some of you. (laughs) Some of you keep wearing the pajamas. But shoes, shoes make sense now. You don't sleep in your shoes. But when the light comes up, the day is at hand. You You don't wear shoes when you're asleep. You wear shoes when the day is at hand. So action changes when... The atmosphere changes and the outside lights are turned off. The inside lights are turned on. Um, Again, Paul says the the night is far gone. The day is at hand. And let us cast off the works of darkness. Just like James. Uh, James says grumbling doesn't make any sense in this new age. 
where the light is breaking and the judge is coming and things are going to be made set right. Grumbling makes no sense. Do not grumble against one another, verse 9. So many of the New Testament moral teachings are because something else is happening. Because he's coming back, therefore do not grumble. It's not just like this <clears throat> naked imperative, don't grumble. Uh, it's, it's don't grumble because, because he's coming so soon. Uh, think of the children <clears throat> with their parent waiting for that soldier to return. And uh, it's very unlikely that the children are going to be fighting or grumbling in that moment. When the parent is at hand and the soldier is about to come back, the children are not going to be grumbling. They're not going to be, well, they might be. But, you know, in, in the analogy, they're not supposed to be. Um, the, complaining and whining don't make sense in that situation. Because the Lord is at hand. And the same thing with swearing. Now, this is kind of complicated, but, um, you know, why, I was asking myself this week, why does James start talking about swearing? That's not cussing, by the way. It's manipulation through words. Uh, it's like, I swear to God, I'll give you my gum if you stop whistling right now or picking your nails. That's, a, that's actually happened before in our family. Uh, I swear I will play categories later if you play basketball with me right now. Now, why do you say I swear? Because typically your, your promises are not trustworthy. So you've got to add in I swear. And that's why Jesus and James say let your yes be yes and your no be no. And, and that kind of behavior doesn't make any sense when the Lord is at hand. That's a work of darkness, as Paul would say. And so things have changed, and the light is coming, and things like your speech patterns should change. Uh, I would say the same thing is true of the way that we use our money. Now, this is going off script here. James doesn't talk about this, but James talks about money a lot. So I feel very comfortable going here. And I would say that hoarding um, and greed don't make any sense, when, especially not when, the, when the, the dawn is breaking. I mean, it might have made sense in another dark world where it was terribly frightening and horrible. But in the world where Christ is about to return to fearfully cling to your money, it doesn't make any sense at all. We were talking to a guy at BB&T who was helping us to decide about investing money. And I would say that's not a bad idea, okay? So I, I don't, I'm not saying you shouldn't invest money. I think it's a good idea, actually. And this guy's a great guy. I think he had some kind of Christian memento somewhere on his desk. But... Um, he was saying, you know, if we invest in this one kind of fund, uh, it is 100% safe. And so uh, you are definitely going to get back all your money in 10 years. And almost certainly, he said, almost certainly more than that. And then Margie said, well, unless Jesus comes again. <laughs> and this guy had no idea. What, you know, he didn't want to offend us, but he was like, okay, <laughs> I'll move on. And... Uh, I don't really know what to do with that either. Uh, like I said, I, I don't think it's wrong to invest, but, um, but I think what she was saying, I think the wisdom is when, um, when the day is breaking, uh, a certain kind of you know, hoarding doesn't make sense. And, um, and the way we use our money should, should change uh, as a result of this second coming. Because, you know, I have to say, uh, verse 9 is very clear. This is going to be about judgment. Uh, as much as it is a homecoming, well, it has to be about judgment if it's going to be a homecoming because the world is so wrong that when he comes, he's got a judge to make things right. And so it's, it, he does say it's a judge that is standing at the door. And when uh, the judge comes back, money that we, the money we have is going to be worthless. And all that will matter is what we did with it. And, and um, you know, we usually think of judgment 
as, uh, as something that will happen to other people, like those oppressors out there who start all the wars, uh, or the ones who ruin the world, they're going to be judged. Um, but when you think about judgment, the one you should be thinking about is you. It's the, only thing that, the only one that really matters when you hear about judgment is, is me. Uh, it doesn't matter about those people that you want to be judged. It only matters about my standing with the judge. And uh, I love what Leo Tolstoy said. He said, everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to change their bad behavior. And I think about my, my grumbling and uh, the swearing, the, the lack of trustworthiness in my language. And I think about hoarding. And it's so hard to let go of money. It is just so difficult to do that. Even when you make plans to do it, you don't quite get that thing done that you said you were going to do. And when I think about the judge standing at the door, um, that can be a frightening prospect. And I don't want um, to downplay that. James doesn't downplay that. You know, that I want to let that kind of sit there and be a reality to you. That, that to make the world right, all the stuff we hate about the world that's going on, it cannot be made right unless we individually are judged as well. Because it's not just about those people out there. It's about me. And I was once standing in front of a judge in Charlottesville um, after I got a ticket. And uh, it was an awful thing just to be standing in front of a human, sinful, flawed man. Uh, he was just so, uh, he didn't smile at me, you know, surprisingly. He wasn't warm. He didn't, hey, Ben, you know, how are you doing? He, he didn't know my name. Uh, he was very strict and cold and uncompromising and detached. And to think that the, the final judge has got to be more strict than that judge in Charlottesville. Has got to be more morally uncompromising than that judge I had in Charlottesville. But the great hope of the passage, and I want to end with this and not with a judgment, because the, the great hope of the passage is that uh, in the second coming, the one who's going to judge us, this judge who's standing at the door, that he has been judged himself. And that's an amazing thing. That the judge who's going to judge us has already been judged. Look at verse 11. Scholars don't know exactly what to do with this. But James says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And some scholars think that that he's talking about Job there. That he's saying in the context of the story of Job, you've seen the patience. But he says you, like he's writing the audience, like y'all have seen something. I mean, you think that a lot of those Jerusalem Christians... Uh, saw the actual crucifixion of Christ, and a lot of them did, then my conclusion, a lot of scholars conclude that what they saw, the purpose of the Lord that they saw, and His compassion that they saw, and His mercy they saw, is they saw the Lord crucified. Uh, They saw the judge uh, on trial. They saw the judge um, declared guilty and condemned. And they saw the judge who was going to be standing at the door. They saw that judge actually publicly executed by crucifixion and torture. So that, James is saying, is the compassion and the mercy that we have to look forward to. Um, that the, the, one, the only one who will ever judge you ultimately, in a way that really matters, has, um, has nail marks in his hands because he has been judged so severely. There's the saying that you can never judge another person until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Now, that's been attributed to uh, Native American wisdom. Um, but I Googled it, and someone said Eminem said that for the first time. And then someone else said Atticus Finch. So I don't know who said that. But whoever said that 
uh, Jesus would do them one better. And he would say, uh, I'll never judge another person until I've experienced their entire judgment. And when the judge comes, he's not going to have a gavel. Uh, His arms are going to be wide open. And uh, he's not going to be wearing a big black robe. He's going to be ready to pardon anyone that wants his mercy. Um, That's why he came. He didn't come to condemn. He came to pardon. And not only will he pardon us, he's going to throw a banquet, the Messianic feast, uh, the the feast of the Lamb, um, like the Passover banquet, the great moment in the life of the Israelite. Um, Imagine those, uh, those soldiers' families. You know, as soon as the soldier comes home, you know that the next thing they're going to do is they're going to have a big home-cooked meal. And so not only does Christ come and pardon people who deserve to be judged and condemned, he then says, let's go have a big meal. It's all on me. It's all in the house. And that's what we experience here at this table. Um, the, the judge uh, not only pardons, but then gives us uh, himself. That Actually, when he first celebrated this meal... He said, this is about what I'm going to do in the very end. When I want everybody to come and uh, enjoy my banquet. So, you know, I want to say that um, what we're about to do is something that um, is about faith. It's, when, if, if you come up here, you know, if you move your muscles to come up here and your mind decides to come up here, that's obviously an act of faith. And so I, I want to be really careful about faith and say that if you're not really ready to do that, it's, it's a really long uh, process to come to that conclusion that, that he really does offer himself to me there. And if you're not ready to do that, then don't feel any pressure to come. We are so glad you're here and we want you to come back. We, we pray for people to come here who have a lot of questions about the faith. Uh, like Austin said, we don't expect everyone here to, to believe. So if you're not ready to do this, feel no pressure to do this. But um, if you do do this, just know that... Um, you know, all of us uh, are going to be judged, and um, we need to be humble about that. That should change the way we relate to one another. But we also know that the one who's going to judge us is incredibly generous and incredibly gracious. And that should really inform the way we approach this table. And so on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took bread.